Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Um, and where's that other guy? I, I had to take him out. He did not know how to dress himself for church, so uh, I'll be doing the talk today. Thank you. Truth is, I ran out of clean shirts that I can leave untucked. I had one dress shirt that was ironed left, so I had to um, find the suit to match the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Let me say a couple of things about a couple of the announcements you heard. I want to underscore it. Uh, free wheelchair mission. I had an opportunity to go last year, but at the last minute, I had to not go. Uh, one uh, opportunity that I hope to um, find again uh, very, very soon. I was talking with some friends last night about this, that Jesus said to one paralytic, take up your mat and go home. And then later on, he said, you will do greater things. You watch these videos, you hear the stories, and you just think about how dramatic the change is from one second to the next. And you realize this is a greater thing that we're doing than even Jesus did. Because how many paralytics did Jesus heal? There's been over 700,000 wheelchairs distributed around the world. Each of those people with the Spirit of God in them, loving on them by giving them wheelchairs that cost $71.88. Soup to nuts like building, shipping, delivery, everything. That is a great way to dramatically change somebody's life and to say, Jesus loves you, he sees you, and he cares for you, and you are worthy of love and attention and correction in your life. So um, uh, one way that I want to ask you to think about it is um, if I stole $71.88 from you, would you miss it? And if you answered no, that's a great reason to uh, write a check for that amount. You won't miss it. You'll forget about it. Life will move on. And if you will miss it, then um, all the more, greater is your gift. (laughs) So... uh, And the great thing about doing this today, I'm pushing this today because it's the last Sunday in October, and this is the last day that these gifts are going to be matched. And so whatever you give is going to be doubled. So it's a a really uh, amazing opportunity. Okay, Uh, The Christmas workshop, uh, this is one of our connections on ramps to the community. And so uh, please sign up for that. Last time, people who don't normally go to our church came to that. And it was a great place for families to invite other families to. And then they kind of get familiarized with our church. And so if you are a parent with kids or you are uh, somebody who can help with the craft, this is a great ministry. It's an opportunity for evangelism and growth. Lastly, town hall that's happening right after the service today. Free lunch, that should be enough. But just in case it's not... Uh, you know, if I can be kind of frank about that, historically, they are attended by people who have been coming for a while to this church. They tend to be on the older demographic, and there tends to be very few of few people that come. We really would love to see that change. Uh, their plan is loosely to have about four of these uh, town hall or business type meetings a year to keep everybody connected and on the same page. And we would love to see a couple of things happen, like younger people to come for the baton to be passed uh, and for more people to come to those meetings. And then as a result of that, for it to become more than just kind of nitpicking on the church or being, 
you know, kind of more micro, but we love to see some macro stuff happen there. We're celebrating all the great things God is doing all around us. And, uh, you know, I was asking myself that question. Is God doing anything in our church? Or is he doing nothing? He's doing something, right? Would it be cool if we celebrated those things? Yeah, he deserves the praise. He does. And so we'll do that in our town hall today. So please come to that, okay? And uh, if I see you not writing a check for 7188, grabbing lunch, and then not coming to town hall, oh, man. I'm going to have to get that other Peter to come and talk to you. Okay, today we're going to finish out chapter 5 in Romans. And a little disclaimer, this is a really hard passage. It's going to take a bit of work to work through it. There's going to be some boring parts. I heard from the last sermon that the beginning was a little tough. The end got a little more interesting. So, uh, But I think it's rewarding nonetheless. And to get to the end, we have to do some of the work. Um, the theme that I see emerging from this passage is the theme uh, that we might call hero. That Jesus is our hero. Not me, not you, not anybody else in your life. There are people who play one on TV. There are people who like to think they are heroic. But really, ultimately, there's only one person. When we use the word hero, it's not a generic category. But we're talking about a very specific person. And that person is the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the theme. It breaks down, in my mind, into two kind of loose categories called separation and connection. Um, I want to start with a couple of stories. When I was a kid, I fantasize all day, every day, about being a hero. These were things that I just had with me all the time. A blanket that I would tie together or a sheet as a cape. And then a uh, stick or a sword of some kind. And I would just run around, just wielding my sword, pretending I don't even know what I was. Um, I swung my sword one time so hard, and I think it was just a big wooden stick, that I knocked our brand new color television, our first color television, off on its front end. And it landed right on the um, screen, and it cracked. And I got a whooping that night. Um, but, you know, lots of other accidents. I fell off my roof once. I fell down the flight of stairs twice. I, if you look closely up and down on my chin, I have some stitches there from that. I was pretending to be the $6 million man uh, running across a very busy high, uh, highway-like street. And I got hit by a fruit truck and uh, suffered um, uh, head injuries. Let the jokes begin. Uh, and then I thought I would outgrow it, but no. When I had my first daughter, Emmy, I had to go see Spider-Man. Um, she was like two weeks old or a week old or something, fresh out of the hospital. We had this thing that allowed us, allowed us to carry Emmy in our chest, but she was so small, she was slipping through the leg hole. You know, she was so tiny. I, I strapped her on. I put on my jacket, zipped a jacket over her to sneak her into the movie theater in case they had a baby policy. 
I dragged Susie with me and we watched Spider-Man. I watched Spider-Man rocking like this so she would stay asleep. And I loved it. Just this normal guy getting bit by a spider. And then he starts like growing muscles and climbing walls. I mean, is that possible? You know? And my mind just started going. And even now, as a, a dad of four kids, every time we're climbing the stairs, I just, there's, there's a voice inside me that says to my kids, jump. Jump! I'll catch you. Go one step higher. Let's try one more today. I love it. And often they do jump, and I catch them. I haven't dropped them yet. Right? And uh, another thing I love to do is I love making coffee for Susie in the morning. I just, I don't care about me. I, don't, I just love handing Susie a perfect uh, cup of uh, coffee. I even tried making some of these things. It didn't turn out that pretty. That's not a picture of one of my cups. But, um, you know, uh, I didn't realize this was happening. But one day, Maddie says to uh, Susie in the morning, she says, Mom, say it. Say what? Mom, say it. You didn't say it today. Say what? Maddie says, you know. We don't know what you're talking about, Maddie. She says, you know, you say, honey, it's so good. (laughs) Apparently, Susie says this every time I hand her a cup of coffee. And she forgot to say it that morning. And now I just realized I want to hear her say that. Honey, it's so good. I can't be a hero in many ways to Susie, but with a cup of coffee... And for my wife, the, I mean, my lover to take such great delight and pleasure in something that I'm, that feels so right and so good. Feel like a hero just handing her a cup of coffee. How about you? Do you ever fantasize about being a hero or having a hero? Somebody to rescue you from maybe some hardship or maybe even some mundanity or Maybe your life is boring. I don't know. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever want to be somebody else, somebody powerful? I do. And uh, I think this longing for uh, heroism, either for for me to experience having a hero in my life, being rescued, things changing in the blink of an eye, that kind of situation, or my being one. You know, imagine some, something happened where some fixture falls to the floor right now. Can you imagine all the guys that would immediately gravitate toward that so they can solve that problem and be the hero right here in front of everybody? What is that? What is that longing for a hero about? Where does that come from? See, uh, you know, I think the word salvation is a pretty loaded word. It's religious. It's kind of dramatic, Right? Uh, but I think the longing for salvation is quite universal. And it's felt by us on some level every single day. We long for this thing that we may not always call salvation, but it's really for a hero. I want to quote one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. And uh, in this book, uh, A Severe Mercy, I want to recommend this book because it's so well written. I was a literature major. This guy is a really good writer. So there's just good literature uh, in here. But it's also filled with uh, honesty and heartbreaking truth. 
And uh, he became very good friends with C.S. Lewis. And so there's 18 back and forth letters with C.S. Lewis and Sheldon. And never before published and never published anywhere else except in this book. And so go pick this up if you can. Uh, but in this book, C.S. Lewis is evangelizing to Sheldon, who's an atheist. And um, he gives several arguments over the course of three different letters. And he says these things. He says, and I've said a lot of these things here before. He says, if a fish is meant for water, why, oh, why? I'm sorry, I totally said that wrong. Okay, start over. Um, why does a fish not fantasize about dry land. It's because it's made for water. It's not conscious about water. And it's not longing for dry land. But if it is, wouldn't it mean that it's destined there at some point? Another example he gives is, if we are made of uh, the material, if we're made by the material universe and we're just material beings... Just flesh and blood, things you can see, touch, and measure. If that's the case, why do we long for the immaterial? He frames it another way, and he says, Why are you constantly surprised by time? Why does time seem to fly? Or why, does, why do things seem to take so long? If you are made... For a material universe, by a material universe, you shouldn't be conscious of time at all. One minute should feel exactly the same as a year. And then he says, if a man is hungry, it doesn't prove that he will get bread. But it does mean that there is such a thing as bread, that he was meant to eat. Or else why would he long for bread? So what does it mean that we long for a hero? It means that, not that we're going to get rescued, but that there is one. And that we desperately need one. Separation and connection. Because of the complexity of these verses, I want to give you just a couple of verses and words to focus on. But, in re- but really, I'm trying to do justice to the text. Uh, look at verse 12 with me. It says this. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. This verse right here, verse 12 is exactly pretty much like this, repeated like 20 times until we get to verse 21. And so if you understand this verse, you understand the whole passage. This is what Paul is trying to say. And he's basically saying this, sin begets sin. Sin begets death. And death is defined as a separation from God. It is my belief that uh, if we were to die because we were to be separated from God right now, all of us, we would die of thirst. This is at least the metaphor that scripture uses to describe separation from God. I'll give you two examples. The first is on the cross. 
Jesus has just been beaten just to the brink of death. Right? He hasn't slept in a while. He's been tortured emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually. He, he has his arms laid out, probably uh, nine-inch nails through his wrists and through his feet or ankles. He's hanging, dying from asphyxiation. Right? When you're hanging from your arms, like you can't breathe, so you have to push yourself up so you can exhale. That's probably the way he died. Right? That's why it says he breathed his last. So he's going through tremendous physical torture. And do you think at some point he says, I'm thirsty? Because that's what he says. Is he talking about his desire for some H2O? I don't think so. I think he who knew no sin became sin for us. And as he's taking on the weight of the world, remember God forsook him. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he said. So the spirit of God is leaving him. It's abandoning him for the first time. There's a break in the relationship. And he's beginning to experience a kind of thirst. It's not just physical thirst. It's a whole being thirst. And so he says, I'm thirsty. And they misunderstand him and they offer him something to drink and he spits it out. Right? Example number two. There's a poor man named Lazarus. There's a rich guy. The poor man Lazarus wants some food from the rich guy. The rich guy says no, and they both die. And they end up in this place, Jesus teaches, where they are separated by a chasm. And the poor man Lazarus is in a place that Jesus calls Abraham's bosom. Right? And he can clearly see the rich man who is in this other place of torment. Now, my personal take on that is that's not hell. That's not heaven. I don't know exactly what it is. If you want my personal theory on that, you can talk to me afterwards. But there's a chasm. They're visible to each other. And the rich man, he's experiencing some kind of burning. Right? It's very hot there. But what does he say? He says in the passage, can you go get Lazarus and give me some, get, get him some tell him to get me some water so I can cool my tongue there's that thirst again it's not a burning up of the body from the outside you kind of imagine hell with you know a red devil and a pitchfork and there's a lot of fire but it's kind of a burning from the inside out isn't it where you are beginning to disintegrate spiritually from the inside it's like death by spiritual dehydration so i think That's what it feels like to be separated from God, to be thirsty. And then one small little example, it says in in the Old Testament, if God were to choose and he withdrew his spirit from us, we would all return to the dust. We would become dust. So it's like a drying out. It's like just the life when it's sucked out, we just... So I think there's some good evidence for us dying by thirst if we are to be separated from God. And what Paul is saying here is that there's this one man, one guy, his name is Adam. We're calling him Adam. And he sinned. Through him, sin entered the world. And when one man sinned, sin began to propagate. And all men 
all of mankind sinned. And therefore all of us died. Death and sin spread to all of us. Separated from God, relationship is broken. That's verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. You see the word type there? That's a powerful word. That's the kind of word that myths are made of. You know, it's like we began to experience this thirst as we began to die, experiencing separation, the withdrawal of God from our lives. Right? And then simultaneously a longing to be saved from that thirst began to be birthed in us. And that's what the type is. It's like it wasn't Adam. Adam was supposed to be our father. He was supposed to be our patriarch. We all were supposed to come from him, but he failed us. Okay, what about the next guy? Oh, he failed us too. He was a murderer. Oh, what about the next guy? Oh, he failed us too. What about the next, the next, the next? And we're longing and we're pining and we're waiting for a type. Who is this type? What is this type? He's the true hero that we have all been longing for. Verse 14 here underscores it even a little bit more. Nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. And that verse is just saying that there's lots of people who came after Adam. They didn't mess up exactly the way Adam did, but they precisely failed us just as everyone else. Every single person has failed to be the hero that we have all been waiting for. You are not the one. I am not the one. And as much of an indictment uh, as this verse is, it's great relief to me. Because I want to be a really good pastor. I do. I work really, really hard. Ask my wife. I am a diligent, hardworking person. I'm very motivated here. But it's not cutting the mustard. And that's okay. I want to be a really good dad. I'm taking Emmy out on a daddy date today. I'm going to be exhausted from preaching twice and the town hall meeting. But right afterwards, I'm going to take her out somewhere. Because we made a deal. She cleaned up the playroom yesterday. So I'm going to keep up my end of the bargain today. But tomorrow, I'm going to fail. But that's okay. That's okay. Because I am not the hero. Adam's not the hero You're not the hero. Nobody else is the hero. Even if we don't sin in the likeness of Adam. So that's all that verse is saying. So there's this separation. Nobody is mending the separation. What's next? Next is connection. And so Paul here in this passage really begins to contrast Adam and Jesus. Because Jesus is a type of Adam, right? What Adam was supposed to do, Adam's job description, Adam failed. And so that same job description is lifted off of Adam 
And it's waiting for the one who can bear the weight of that description. Who is that? And the testimony of scripture is that that person is no less than the son of the living God himself, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ. He alone is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one, the chosen one, the hero. He's the Neo. He's the Spider-Man. He's the Superman. He's the Thor. He's the one, the hero underneath every hero story that we have ever been fascinated with. And so Paul begins to make this comparison. In verse 15, he says, is not like. I know, I know Jesus is the type of Adam. He's in the same category as Adam. He has the same job description as Adam, but he's not like Adam. And then verse 16, through Adam, when he sinned through one sin, he contaminated the whole of humanity. And he says, but this guy, Jesus, he's not like that. Through one act of righteousness, he's going to save the whole of humanity. Okay? This is the deal. This is Paul trying to describe how this comes about. And then verse 20, it sums it up here. How did Jesus do this? How was he the hero? The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. And we see this theme of abounding grace playing out throughout this whole passage. In verse 15, we have the word abound. In verse 16, we have the word arose. The phrase abundance of and the word reign. And then in verse 20, we have the word abounding. And then in verse 21, we have the word reign. All of these words all kind of mean the same thing. That grace abounds, that it increases, it overflows where sin increases. Now think about how significant that difference is. Because before, with Adam, when sin increased, what happened? We died. We were separated from God. But here, with Jesus, when sin increases, instead of us dying, grace abounds all the more. It goes even up higher than the sin, such that it actually, instead of killing us, it saves us. Verse 21 says, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's not complicated how it happens. It's The way it happens is through this thing called abounding grace. We touched on grace last week. And I said that there are some arguments to this idea of unconditional love. What are some of those arguments? It's precisely why it works. Uh, one argument I have is that uh, grace is unfair to God. Now, if you are gracious all the time, you would feel like life is pretty unfair. That you are being stepped on 
that you are being used. Everything is always at your expense. And you would say, this isn't fair. And you say, well, it's not fair for God. If he's always having to abound in love and grace, it's not fair to God. Great uh, argument. The answer is, you're right. It's not fair. Grace, by definition, is not fair to God. If God wanted to be fair, we'd all be dead. So, basically, God's saying, get over it. It's at my expense. It's my party. I'm throwing it. Just come. Come have a good time. Now, you say, well, if God throws a party, that's good. But if he's throwing all the parties all the time, isn't that kind of like a taking advantage of God? Isn't it sort of my turn? And God says, yes, that's a great argument as well. But the answer is, yes, it is a taking advantage of God. By definition, grace is a taking advantage of God. We are completely exploiting the goodness of God. That's what it is. And what scripture teaches us is that just when he begins to feel like it's unfair for God and that it's a taking advantage of God, just when it feels like to you it's something you don't deserve this time, that's grace's starting point for you. Tell me, last time, the, the last time that you prayed for forgiveness for something, and you felt like, oh, I really, I really blew it this time. I don't deserve forgiveness. And you kind of found yourself beating yourself up a little bit. Did you deserve forgiveness the other times when you didn't feel like that? When you were taking it for granted, was it any less grace on God's part? Was it any less unfair for God to forgive you? Was it any less a you taking advantage of God's love for you? And the reality is, each and every single second that we have, that we call life, is completely undeserved. It is a gracious gift of God. We don't deserve it. If God were to withdraw his breath from us, we would all crumble to the ground. That's what you call fair. That's called justice. That's called right in man's eyes. But God, but God, but God, but God what? But God sent his son. But God loves us with a gracious love. But God absorbs all that is us. So where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. I want to give you a definition for grace. Grace means everything is used for God's good purposes. Everything. Grace means redemption. Grace means a redemption which is the economy of God. I want to make a very strong and black and white and dramatic statement which is 100% true. Ready? There's nothing you can do, nothing you can do that God's grace cannot cover. 
Your life is not plan B. It's not plan C. It's not plan D. It doesn't matter what you've done or not done, what situation you're in, how you feel, what you will do. There's nothing under the sun that can ever be that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In God's economy, everything will be used for the good if you're willing to trust that he will use everything for the good. This is what grace is. When grace meets the, when the rubber of grace meets the road of life, it's economy. Not one wasted tear, not one bad decision that isn't redeemed. God is that good. He's that powerful. He's that wise. There's nothing you've ever done that God was surprised by. God never said, oh my gosh, Peter, I didn't see that one coming. What am I going to do? How will I forgive you? How will I fix that? How will I fit that into my universe? Okay, plan B. That's never happened. None of his plans are numbered because there's only one plan and his power and his grace and his love and his wisdom and his goodness will make sure everything is committed and solid on track for this one purpose. That's the economy of God. That's redemption. That's the abounding grace. That's the gift of life that's offered to us in Jesus Christ. Now, let me be clear. It's not for everybody. It's for those who will trust that it's for them. If you will say yes to the love of God in Christ Jesus, instant redemption. You will begin to see the work of God in your life. You will look back and say, that season was really terrible. But I can't ask God to undo it because I grew so much. There was a redemptive aspect to that. I'm not willing to let go. Grace abounds when sin abounds. Yes, it's a taking advantage of God. Yes, it's unfair to God. Yes, that's precisely what grace is. And it has to be abounding grace. It can't be just enough grace. It can't be too little grace. It has to be abounding, enough to kill you. You have to be drowning in it. Grace has to be all you have. Every shred of self-dignity and self-worth and congratulation you hold on to, it's going to burn up. It doesn't mean anything relative to the power of God at work in your life. Verse 17, 18, 19, 21 has the word righteous or righteousness. How does this abounding grace happen? It happens by Jesus forgiving you of your sins and your self-trust. Cleanses you of all of our self-righteousness, all of our sin, all of our goodness, all of our badness, all forgiven. And then Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised him from the dead. as a spirit of redemption. And now we are made righteous that is connected to God. And once we are connected to God, the storehouse of all that God has for us becomes available. This is the biblical story of salvation. That Jesus, the hero, creates a pathway to God, the Father. 
through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which was not possible before Jesus cleansed us of our sins. Close with a story. Um, Susie has a new friend. Um, uh, I don't know actually what church she goes to, but she does a ministry uh, where she ministers to people who are hurting and wounded. And uh, wonderful, wonderful ministry. And several months ago, last year, uh, I met uh, Susie and I met uh, her family for the first time. And um, her husband uh, has specifically looked forward to this evening together because he was having a lot of pain in his feet and his legs. And he was slowly losing the ability to walk and stand uh, for his feet to bear weight. And so some of you know that um, I have uh, I've dabbled in some uh, prayers for healing. And so I really wanted to pray for him. And I wanted him to get healed. And I prayed for him. I prayed pretty hard. I prayed earnestly. And, uh, you know, opened our eyes and he wasn't healed. And it was very disappointing it was a letdown of an experience, and I was frustrated by that experience. And um, you know, um, I think this is a testimony. Uh, this is a um, it reveals sort of my own fleshly heart about it. But I was a little bit kind of just disappointed and um, uh, embarrassed, a kind of a slight embarrassment, like oh, it didn't work. And uh, <clears throat> and then recently. Uh, we kind of lost touch with them. And then recently, Susie was hanging out with her again. And she's updating Susie on her life. And it's just horrible, you guys. She's just in a really tough place. Her husband's condition has progressively gotten worse. Where now uh, he's been diagnosed with a very rare condition. Where the bones in his legs are separating from the connective tissue in his body. And so the bones are kind of just floating. There's even a part where it's pushing, trying to push out through the skin. He's in agony every single day. And uh, the doctors can't believe he's been trying to walk on these. So he's now wheelchair-bound, and he's diabetic, and a couple other things. And he's lost his job, can't work. He lost his insurance. And... Uh, they're trying to sell their home because their home is three stories and now he need, they need a flat home. And so now they're living in a rental that's flat. And life is really, really hard. And Susie expected the story to end that way. You know, and when I was hearing this story, I just was heartbroken hearing this story about this couple that I had prayed for. And then Susie said, but Peter, you know what she said? She just kept going and she said, she is so thankful. She said, Peter, uh, she said, Susie, I can't tell you how lucky we are because, you know, when he lost his job, even before he lost his job, we had decided for some random reason to transfer his insurance cover coverage to my job. And so he was not even on his insurance when he lost his job. So there was no gap in coverage. So insurance is covering everything. And then she said, all of these friends are coming up out of the woodwork. We even forgot about some of them, but they're all showing up and they're loving on us and they're helping us. And she said, and Peter, I have to, I mean, she said, Susie, I raised my own funds for my ministry and checks are coming in the mail, anonymous checks and donors. Some of them don't even know that we're going through a hard situation, but they just felt the prompting in their hearts with their writing checks. God is taking such good care of us. And she's so thankful 
and experiencing so acutely the presence, the nearness, the abounding grace of God in her life. It's not anything she's done, some good decision they've made. No, it's just God taking care of them. And she's experiencing it that way. When I heard this story, I started to cry and I um, just prayed and I started repenting because in my heart, after I prayed for him, I felt badly enough. I kind of abandoned them, you guys. You know, I just, just kind of was like, oh, it'd be okay if we didn't run into him again. You know? And I, I, I was praying for them for a while, but then I stopped and I kind of just wrote him off and I felt guilty about that. So then I needed to justify that guilt by continuing to have like kind of negative thoughts about him to justify my abandonment. You know, that's how human nature works, right? And when I heard this story, I just said, you know, I'm so glad God's not like me. Like, God didn't abandon them. God didn't write them off. Through all of their hardship and all the tough season of life they're going through, God's right there. He says, this is an opportunity for redemption. My grace will abound. They will not feel punished by this. They will not feel indicted by this. This is not some sign that I've left them or they've done something wrong. This is not a judgment. There's no condemnation in Christ here. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to reveal my nearness. I'm going to provide for them so they would call me Jehovah Jireh, Lord God provider. I will reveal aspects of myself they have never experienced before. And I will prove to them that I am trustworthy. Not Peter, he's not their hero. What is the grace of God in your life? It's not just something that allows you to say, God, I'm sorry. Hit me up, Lord. No. It's the power and presence of God in your life that's abounding at all times. You're surrounded by it. You have too much of it, and it's working, and it's wise, and it's powerful. And it's eventually going to get you. And all the math we do to try to get ahead of other people, all the calculating and collecting, with all that's for naught in the power of the grace of God in our life. And all of the deficiencies in our lives, all of the mistakes we make, all the ways that we fall short or are just complex or evil or wounded, all of that just is nothing, disintegrates to nothing in the economy of God's grace. God's grace changes everything and it dominates, overshadows everything. And this is what Paul is saying. You entrust your life to yourself, then you're saying, Adam is good enough. I will be that type for myself. Or you're entrusting to somebody else. It says they're not trustworthy. Nobody else can do what Jesus Christ alone has done. Will you trust that? Will you trust him? That, my friends, is the gateway that opens the grace of God in our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to say yes to grace. Yes to the power and presence, the economy, the redemption of God in our lives. Help us to stop judging ourselves and calculating and doing math and figuring stuff out and 
all day long, just being anxious for our lives and for ourselves and for each other. It's such nonsense in the light of your power and presence in our lives. Jesus, you are our hero. You save us. So we entrust ourselves to you. Give us a fresh new understanding of the grace of God. And if there's some of you here in this room who have never trusted your life to Jesus and his grace, and you don't know him as your Savior and Lord, would you pray this prayer with me? Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I am no good by myself. Come into my life and be my hero. I entrust my life to you from this day forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.